tonight's episode we have Alan A. Springfield on the show. Alan's a UFO researcher, author, cultist and prolific writer and social mediaist. So we'd just like to get right in it now and we'll invite Alan into the show. Now you're now on the breakfast tea then. Uh, no, I've got it right here. Yeah, I'm the same. It'll keep me going. Otherwise, if we talk for longer than an hour, my voice will become 76 years old. <laughs> well, you know, the real, <laughs> the real reason that, uh, you know, that I'm here is because I, I want to be sort of, where am I? <laughs> <laughs> so good, okay. good to have you on. I've done a short intro just before you came in there, um, on you, and um, just uh, if you want to kind of tell the audience, if you want to just a, a little bit about yourself, just uh, some of the audience have been new to the subject, coming on and listening to this for the first time. So if you want to give a a short rundown of yourself, um, just quickly, and then we'll kind of move on for there if that's all right. Okay, sure. Uh, I'm Alan Greenfield. I write books about the strange, the unusual, the unknown, and I am blessed or cursed with a sense of bizarre humor. So I'm absolutely earnest under it all. However, however, don't mistake that for someone who, like many people in these paranormal fields uh, does not take the denizens of the paranormal universe very seriously because I do. Mm -hmm. It's also daytime on this side of the pond at the moment, so you will see actual sunlight shining through the Oh, no, no, I'm <laughs> melting, melting. What a world, what a world. Okay. This is, is, this quite, is this quite early for you? <laughs> I, do, I do appreciate you coming on early for me. <laughs> I know why you did that, because you calculated at midnight you will turn into a pumpkin, correct? Definitely, definitely. <laughs> uh, and I, I need uh, to be drinking the eight cups of coffee as well. I'm on the breakfast tea now. Um, I tried to avoid the beer because I'd, I'd talk that fast. He probably wouldn't understand me. So <laughs> I'm glad your shirt says gone Sasquatching and yeah. not gone Bigfooting. Yeah, yeah, gone Sasquatching. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've really got it in for two terms that are common in the field. One is Bigfoot, which immediately for people out there in the great sort of washed public uh, 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 sounds ludicrous because it's, you know, this yeah. image of some guy with really big feet. <laughs> and the other one is what I like to call in the spirit of UFO, I like to call it UAP. And I think the term UAP is probably something that should be relegated to the dustbins of yep. totally, totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. Yeah, on both counts, um, the Bigfoot and the UAP. Uh, UAP has been cutting about for a good while. I could actually, I seen it in a, it was in a, a British UK UFO report going back to the late 90s and they well, not I mean it it can be life. used you know yeah. you can there are a bunch of terms that have been tried out uh, from flying saucers on and then if you go back in history they were angels or demons depending on your you know 
yeah. your particular position in the clergy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's demons burn a couple more witches. Okay. <laughs> of course, they say that in rather good medieval Latin, which is not actually good Latin, but we'll pass on that. It was interesting you made in the last email, you made reference to uh, Robert Kirk. Yeah, I, I have an interesting side note on that before we talk about Kirk himself. Yeah. Um, when I got involved with the Hellier folks who are yeah. who have been very good to me and I've tried to be good to them and they're wonderful people, it occurred to me that uh, Greg comes from a family of preachers and this must be more appreciated among Scots than among anybody else, but Kirk mm -hmm. is church. So yeah. he's the new church and they go to this little town and uh, printed neatly on the uh, banquette or sidewalk or whatever it is, uh, it says New Kirks. Yeah. And I thought, and they're looking for where Indrid Cole lives, which I think they actually found, mm -hmm. although it was not where I thought it was, you know. Yeah. I was stupid enough to listen to Terry way back in the day. But um, uh, I, I think that there's a double entendre there mm -hmm. because, you know, they're the new church. And, of course, uh, Greg speaks sometimes about his alienation from his, uh, I guess, uh, I, I don't want to overstate it, his father's Bible beating. And that's yeah. not uncommon. Ask Alistair Crowley. Well, you can't ask him. He's a bunch of ashes under a tree in New Jersey, which is a fitting in to a dissipating life. He probably would have been, been amused, really. <laughs> oh, it was interesting that you have, when you made the mention to Robert Kirk, uh, like one of the episodes I had on, um, because um, and the Kirk just there, I was there today. I was at, um, at Kirk's, at the Kirk where Robert Kirk was allegedly, <clears throat> he's got a, a memorial there now, and where he was allegedly buried, but he's supposed to be, his remains weren't there. But I was there today. It was like, that's funny enough, because synchronistically, when you'd said that in the email, I'd just returned from there today. Um, because that's only, it's only about, for me, as a crow flies, well, it's about an hour's drive. And um, I, I wasn't going to go there today, and I ended up, uh, I took the dog out, and I had the kids with me, and I kind of thought, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll head to the Opal's different place. And I kind of, the last minute, I thought, I'm going to head, I've been there a few times. So I kind of headed out there and I took the kids around and I showed them the graveside and I explained the story to them. Then I took them to Dune Hill, which is the fairy hill as well. So I mean, I came back in and I got your email. You'd, you'd put reference to that in the email as well. You know what I mean? So, but it's yeah, like, did, you, did you see the email first and then go? No, or? no, no, ah. no. No. That's a true synchronicity. And it was a different, of course, I'd left, I'd left, um, I probably left about 11 o'clock, sorry, no, it was about 12, half past 12 I left for here, so it would have been your time and your time. So we're there for a good number of, good number of hours, took them round there, went up, um, up the back hills of uh, Aberfoyle, which is the town uh, where the kirk was and stuff, and uh, I've actually GoPro'd it and videoed it with the kids and stuff, and uh, it's funny because the actual tree at Dune Hill, it's usually got quite a lot of fairy blessings on it and stuff and it's got ribbons tied around it and a lot of money on it and things like that but it'd been cleared because quite a lot of time maybe locals will come up and clear it all and stuff and take it away you think it's rubbish but 
Um, you can still see orphans there going in and stuff. So we explaining to the kids about it. But it was funny. So when I came back in, um, just to double check the timings and stuff like that, if you were okay with the timings, and I seen that email and I thought that's it's quite synchronistic. I've just been back for there, literally, and opened the email. So <laughs> when you talk about this stuff, the synchronicity seemed to increase. I used to keep a log of all those that happened to me and the circumstances. But frankly, I would be doing nothing with my life other than writing in the log because uh, the, the number of synchronicities that happen to people who do field research or who even contemplate this stuff, or for that matter, even see uh, the entire Hellier series to yeah. date, uh, it, you come away from it. I mean, I get the same effect from Philip K. Dick's books. If I read one, and I've read them all now, so I guess I'm out of synchronicities, but there would be an endless number of synchronicities that day, unless I was saying, well, by reading this, by reading this, there will be synchronicities, in which case they don't happen. Yeah. It seems like it wants to be spontaneous, and I think that is a causally highly significant. So yeah. here we go. You know, it validates this uh, this particular episode of your program. I'd like to think or hope. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that was just a, a big one today. Just coming in and seeing the email, I thought that's mad. I just came back for there. I mean, Next. so. Next time you go, go at midnight and take a shovel because I don't believe that he's buried there or anywhere. No, I don't think he is either. I think that's it sees that in the plaque next to it as well that they don't think he's there. But there's a memorial, the actual grave, Kenny Stone, it's there. It's a memorial now. So um but quite interesting. But just like a quick one about synchronicities to do with that as well. Um I was listening. Well, according to- according to Michael Bertio, if people invest in a location it becomes sacred space whether uh, the actual event took place there or not, in this case, a burial. Yeah. So, um, uh, and the longer that is true, the more true it is because reality is malleable. And I, I buy into that. I think yeah. that, uh, you know, if you. Uh, venerate something as uh, the tooth of Jesus Christ or whatever after oh a century or so that's the the uh the era that uh that Bertio puts on it a hundred years constitutes uh validating a particular egregore in a particular location yeah. or object or whatever which is pretty much uh, what the uh than uh, Newkirks say on their on their podcast, you know, that uh, objects become haunted not because they were originally haunted, but because they're labeled haunted objects and people take them to be haunted objects. And at some point, I may be skewering their ideas with my own, but <laughs> it becomes actually haunted or yeah. Uh, one of the things with all of the Episcopal powers that have been put upon me by the nameless order I used to be part of, which uh, <laughs> if you render something sacred by touching it or by laying on of hands or whatever, it becomes sacred whether it was initially or not. There are various ways to to make something uh, empowered 
Yeah. And whether it's a person, place, or thing. Yeah, that's, that's all through belief, um, attention, and intention, which is kind of manifesting that and bringing that. Um, oh, absolutely. The funny, the funny thing was when I kind of was starting the podcast, and the very first way to go to first, my kind of plan was to go first to go to um, do the story in Robert Kirk, a bit of that. And um, I was kind of thinking about it, and then I'd heard enough, I was listening to another podcast, and they were talking to uh, Greg Newkirk about um, about the um, Hellier, and they were talking about the secret Commonwealth. And I'd literally just, I'd literally had the, the secret Commonwealth just kind of sent through. I kind of thought, that's quite interesting. I mean, just I kind of hearing that off the off chance, but there's not a lot of people are out buying the secret Commonwealth before, like apart from obviously after Hellier, maybe people, more people bought it and stuff. And um, so I think he was in a, a podcast talking about it. And then, or it was maybe um, Penny Royale, maybe heard her talking about it as well. So um, from that, I was kind of looking at Robert, I was going to be looking at Robert Kirk anyway. The book was sitting there. And then I, I kind of heard them as well. And I came away from it because I was kind of thinking other stuff came up and um, looking at other kind of stories and stuff. And I always kind of planned to go back to it. And then before I got a chance, somebody, somebody came in and informed me where like sightings they had. And um, so that was like the very, very first one I went to. And this, oh, I was thinking first or second, it was the first call I got through to actually go and can you see it? And um, it was in the town of Aberfoyle, where, they, mm. where I was going to yeah. do that first story, where it was kind of drawing me back to it again. You know what I mean? So, um, and eventually when I did kind of go back and I, I kind of had a, I found an author um, who was looking into the, the story. She went in and found, she got all his records, his diaries, that's quite interesting. I mean, some of the kind of stories for it, but enough of that, you know what I mean? But listen, I appreciate you coming on, um, taking the time out your day to come on. Um, did I introduce myself? I don't remember now. Yes, so. you did. You did. Thanks. <laughs> okay. uh, I know this is quite early for you in the day. <laughs> I mean, so uh, it's very early because <laughs> I am a creature of the night. <laughs> So, I mean, just kind of what I was going to do was because obviously your background, you've got a, a background, obviously, um, in UFO research, obviously in the cult as well. I mean, some of your, your key books, um, The Grail Within, um, Secret Cipher, uh, The Euthanauts, The Complete Secret Cipher, Euthanauts, um, and um, was it Rituals of the Men in Black, or Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. So just to, to name a few. You know I mean, so coming from that kind of aspect, from the, the occult aspect, um and being a UFO researcher and um, author, yeah, I mean, I kind of thought you'd you 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 you've definitely got a different take on what you see out there than maybe other people. Maybe they'll maybe see something that's nuts and bolts or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Or if it's a a ghost, they'll see a ghost. You know I mean, but you'll have a different take on a lot of different things. So my kind of plan was to to just get your take on different aspects of some things to see what your take was on it. You know what I mean? No saying that's the right or wrong way. We've all got kind of theories, but I always kind of thought it'd be interesting to <clears throat> hear some of your own theories um, in regards to um, the phenomena in general. And then kind of going through some of the phenomena. If, if, that, if that sound all right? Oh, that sounds fine. In <laughs> fact, up until uh, just a few years ago, I was, uh, to paraphrase the New Testament, which is not my sacred book, but nevertheless, it is a quotable in Western civilization, albeit in King James translations. <laughs> but I'm, I was a lone voice crying in the wilderness about 
Well, I don't think these things are extraterrestrial. I think they're ultra-terrestrial. And you know, Keel, uh, John Keel, who I knew, uh, coined the term, but the concept uh, I was uh, pushing as far back as the late 1960s when I realized they're not coming here from Mars and they're not seen anywhere around Mars, uh, the face on Mars notwithstanding. They, uh, they're seen on or near the Earth. And that doesn't suggest to me the immediate notion of this, what I consider a false dichotomy. Either they are uh, natural phenomena or hoaxes on the one hand, or they are spaceships from, used to say Mars when I first got into ufology or uapoli, <laughs> whatever they want to call it now. Um, well, it's no good I drink yet, the uapoli. <laughs> well, I prefer the term that I coined uh, many years ago, which is para-ufologist, mm -hmm. because clearly if you link all sorts <laughs> of paranormal phenomena to being underlying it all from the same basis, although it manifests in a variety of ways, then you have overturned the notion that these things are separate categories, which uh, turf wars have created this rivalry amongst, uh, well, uh, cryptozoologists don't want to talk about UFOs because they're not respectable, and occultists don't want to talk about uh, cryptozoology because occultism is respectable, which is... Uh, a very, very strange proposition if you get out there in the real world beyond the narrow little vaguely incestuous circle of people around the world that are actually involved in this this kind of research. It, it, to me, fairly early on, it became apparent that all of these things have the same characteristic. And if you're aware of the background. And by the way, I read uh, the, the Secret Commonwealth when I was about 14. Mm -hmm. There was a, a publisher that called itself University Books. They later got into softcore porn, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, th their habit in their earlier days, uh, when I was a member of their book club, was anything that wasn't nailed down by copyright that had anything to do with the esoteric they republished. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I had read the Secret Commonwealth and I had read, uh, for me, the most influential was uh, W.I. Evans Wentz, uh, The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries. And that was very eye-opening because that was the same time I had gotten involved in ufology and the cases in uh, Latin America in particular, and also in France, oddly enough, were of beings that if you took it out of the outer space context, they were exactly like the Fae or, you know, local names apply. Yeah. I mean, uh, here, not a hundred miles. Don't ask me to do metric. I have no idea what all that is. That's, uh, but, we, use my, uh, we use my OC as well. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always say die, die hard people who are uh, very pro metric will always go into a pub and say, I want a pint of beer, not a liter. 
yeah. a pint. So, you know, it's reverting to uh, common units. And that is, that is still what we use for the most part in America, except for uh, uh, scientific measures, which are, favor these little uh, tiny amounts of things. End of sermon on the evils of metric, <laughs> but, but uh, um, I, uh, the Evans Wentz book, uh, it, it, although it concentrates on uh, on Scotland and Ireland and uh, uh, I guess England and Wales as well, um, talks about the worldwide phenomena of the Fay. And right here in Georgia, as I was saying, maybe a hundred miles from here, is this enormous uh, gorge, Tallulah Gorge. The name is a Cherokee Indian name, but the Cherokee avoided this area because the Yumwe Chumdi, the little people, lived there and were said to have a cavern in which no one returned from. So they they avoided it forever. I, of course, did a lot of research in that area myself. I never found the cavern, but I know other people or have known other people who have and have lived to tell it. And then there are some like uh, Robert Kirk who mm-hmm. sort of uh, disappeared into the ether and never were seen again their memorials notwithstanding yeah and the oblivion (laughs) (laughs) well Well, i mean they may emerge you know a thousand years from now and say okay well i was there for a day and a half because time runs different in magonia than here yeah it's it's interesting where you you have um obviously the stories of the fair right around the world, but it's interesting how they overlap in some of these window areas as well. So you've got like window areas. I know like the most common one that people know these days is like Skinwalker Ranch, you know what I mean? So TV show and all that kind of stuff. But these places are everywhere, um, especially around like sacred sites and all that kind of stuff, as you know. Um, what's your kind of theory on that in regards to like window areas and, and portals? Or, and obviously, is it a, a convergence point where these places are overlapping, but they can come through or what? Or what's your kind of theory on that? I believe about oh, a year or so ago, I think we discussed that on Twitter. And I was pointing out that, uh, uh, what do you call it? The Midlands, the place where Scotland becomes narrower, has a ley line running straight through it. And of course, that's a very, very intense area for all kinds of the phenomena that I'm interested in, in uh, that's phenomena A, plural, you know, uh, it would be everything from uh, yeti type creatures to all kinds of uh, phantom cats, which, yeah, uh, uh, yeah and to UFOs, to um, ghosts, lots and lots and lots of ghosts. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that anywhere you have a convergence of ley lines, uh, which are uh, telluric, uh, earth, uh, uh, invisible markings, actually, they can be visible to certain uh, psychics, but yeah. uh, 
but you can know them by their effects. And the ones that, uh, what was his, uh, Alfred Watkins uh, documented mostly in England, uh, being English, um, he, um, uh, it does, isn't confined to there. In fact, there are world maps of ley lines. And wherever you have two or more that converge, First of all, there's almost always a giveaway, either a natural feature such as uh, a hill, usually a hill with a reputation as being a barrow or a burial ground or, you know, whatever the local uh, rumors or or archaeological facts are to a church or to a kirk or to a you know a sacred spot or something or a battle happened there i mean there there are uh ghostly things at culloden a good reason for it because a lot a lot of people died there but that's uh you know the the number of ghostly army sightings there is enormous on the other hand i lived for some years on a battle uh site of the well, within, you know, uh, within yards of uh, a battle site that uh, was a very, very bloody one um, in Ackworth, Georgia, which is near Mount Kennesaw, which was like the last uh, Union defeat in the American Civil War. And nothing, you know, nothing in the way, of, because it's not on ley lines. It doesn't uh, have any particular significance. And a lot of people died there. Um, you might argue that uh, uh, cemeteries and graveyards uh, uh, have a certain power because because dead people are there. Many dead people from different generations, especially if it's a, if it's an old one. And indeed, there are apparition cases in many, but some don't have them at all, or they're very sparse. Mm-hmm. And uh, from my uh, personal investigations, I I would say it becomes enhanced if there is that convergence of ley lines that runs right through it, as is frequently the case, because one of the first things that happen in that type of environment is somebody comes along and builds a church. And one one that I investigated on uh, St. Simon's Island, Georgia, which was also a battle site in the whole world is a battle site, really. But but there was a particularly bloody one, which appropriately is called the Battle of Bloody Marsh between uh, uh, the Georgia colonists in the early 1700s and uh, the Spanish who were ensconced in their uh, castle of St. Mark in St. Augustine, Florida, and they decided to march north because clearly the the Protestants up north uh, had to be, you know, brought into the true faith. And it was a huge battle on St. Simon's Island, and uh, it is to this day known as the Battle of Bloody Marsh. Well, St. Simon's Island is on ley lines, and there are more ghost stories there than you can shake a stick at, as we say here in the deep south of America. (laughs) So, um, including uh, one particularly significant one that I actually was able to photograph the ghost. This is many years ago. And that is sufficiently bizarre that I don't know what the local politics of it is, but when I recently... Uh, went back to look at some of the original research materials. 
talk about Orwellian things. It has uh, the local uh, accounts of this case, mm -hmm. which goes back to the uh, uh, late 19th century, well, reasonably late, 1870s. Um, they've changed the story completely. I don't mean that it's less of a story, but it's a different story. Yeah. Now, that may have something to do with the fact that almost all Anglican churches in America after the American Revolution suddenly decided that they were Episcopal churches because uh, that's happened in South Africa too. The uh, people did not want to be associated with, you know, the colonialists. And but this is one, and there there are others that chose to continue to be an Anglican church with a, you know, a, a priest in residence. And this church, uh, I think, the original one burned down in the 1820s, which is very common. They rebuilt it. And the uh, the story that initially got me to go down there, where there were many witnesses to the wife of the priest of that church in the 1870s, uh, who who died shortly after they were married, and is buried in the churchyard, as you know, as was fashion at the time, and whose apparition has been seen over and over again by many people ever since. So I got my friend Jim Mosley interested in going down there and we went and I sort of wandered away from Jim and our uh, uh, other associate who would not be a familiar name because Jim called himself a psychic negative, which was to say it's not that he didn't think these things had something to them. Mm -hmm. However, he tended to think that things did not happen around him, the interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I wandered away, looked in, uh, looked at the church from the graveyard, and something told me, and this is not common with me, I'm not, uh, uh, well, maybe I'm a little psychic, but I certainly don't, it's, it's more like intuition than, yeah. hey, Alan, do this. So take your camera and just, point from the graveyard to the wall of the church and press the release on the 35 millimeter camera I was using. Yeah. And I did one second exposure. And in those days, I was into candid photography. So I used surveillance film, which is very high speed black and white film. And sure enough, there was the face of a decomposing uh, but clearly female image uh, and it's just the upper part of the body, but you could see the the late Victorian dress. It fit to a T the purported ghost. Well, when I went back, uh, I had this gentleman who was, I think, interested in doing an interview with me for National Public Radio until I talked to him. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, I haven't found a buyer for that. I really thought that it would be like that. And I, I think he felt a little guilty. And I said, look, uh, uh, my personal, I'm, a, I'm primarily a field researcher mm -hmm. and analyst. And I like to fancy an historian of the movement, uh, not a uh, 
co-participant, so to speak, in most things. I have a long, 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 too long history involved in this, and I have seen very, very, very little, and mostly under absolutely ludicrous circumstances. But I did take this photo, and it, it had been evaluated by the by two different competent laboratories, and they couldn't figure out, you know, any other explanation for it. They didn't say this is a an apparition, a ghost. Yeah. But they did. They tried on every. Cons uh, I'm sorry. No, you're not right. It's a mistake. They're renovating my building, <laughs> and while renovating it, they are screwing up the emergency system so that it goes off periodically. Just ignore it. It's probably right. the Russian missiles are probably not inbound. And if they are, <laughs> I don't think my running outside is going to quite protect me. You know, it's like the old thing, duck and cover. Right? Don't you come to the table, you'll be fine, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then your derriere blows up first yeah, by it. a microsecond, you know. So. You got 20, 20, 20 millimeters of chipboard are going to help you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, when yeah, it's interesting, back, getting the, interesting getting I, the, the photograph though as well. Um, and that, but uh, like, so the original I gave to Mosley to take to the Eastman Kodak uh, lab in Rochester, New York, where they apparently employ someone whose only job is to do photo analysis of anomalous photos. All right, okay. And uh, that report came back, but I no longer have the negative. I mean, I think they returned it to Jim. Jim was a very close friend of mine, but I don't know. I never thought to get the, the negative back because, you know, it had, I'd already published the story, I think in Saucer News, his, yes. his newsletter from that period before he started Saucer Smear, Beer, Cheer, whatever rhymed with Smear. When he <laughs> ran, ran out of words, he went uh, to... Uh, saucer clues, saucer blues. And then there was the issue dedicated to Gene Steinberg and I called saucer Jews, which I thought was particularly funny because uh, I don't know what the readers thought, but Jim, you know, Jim was a close friend. And at that time, Gene Steinberg, who now runs a, a podcast and has for years, uh, was uh, was his employee. So there was, you know, Jim didn't have a prejudice bone in his body. It was very funny. Um, Going back to some of the the, the cucks though you're talking about in regards to the um, the ley lines. I mean, you know, obviously, you, you know, but a lot of these churches in the past that the the built in all the old pagan sites as well. You know what I mean? So, um, well, most a lot of churches are built on old pagan sites. Yeah. yeah. So that's like there's one. We've got one here which is. Um, always refer to this. It's like it's, it's literally it's about four miles for me. Um, it's like a five and a half thousand year henge up the top of a hill with burial mounds, and uh, the Christians buried their dead on there at some point as well. They try and kind of claim it at a certain point. Um, but you get a lot of phenomena. That's a, that's a, a definite kind of convergence point up there where you get a lot of phenomena happening and uh, within this area. I mean, I've seen one of your posts you put up. Um, about the, the Bonnie Bridge area, in our area, we've got that here, quite a lot of phenomena has been through the years, mostly the kind of um, 
solid kind of UFO cases through the year where abducted, well, say like really, really prominent sightings, police involved, things like that, the whole thing at Bonnybridge. They're talking about like a 10, 15 mile radius for here. There's quite a lot of stuff goes on. I mean, but it's it's in a snippet of time, you know yourself, is you, you don't see a lot, but through the span of time, you see a lot of phenomena kind of taking place through like decades rather than like obviously years and stuff, and you get your flaps and all that kind of stuff. Um but I, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I've got, I've got a picture as well. I mean, which is, it's, it's a, a pretty good picture. I know I shared a bit of it online with um, one of my friends in his podcast, but no, no, Kenny, a lot of it. I'll show you it when we're done and let you see it. But it's, it's quite a good, prominent picture. Um, it's something um, in the picture, and it's that. It's also at another site where there was like a, a lot of ghost activity. It's supposed to be like a lot of kind of ley line um, activity there as well, and there's a stone circle there. And this thing nipped in the photograph with three people at a wedding. Um, and you see it, but it's in, it's in between them, actually, like over their shoulder. And you just see it from there down. Um, uh, it's no, yeah. It's no got, it's no got that part of it's lip or that there, but it's, it's, it's no overexposure, different teeth, all that kind of stuff. But they never even seen it. I mean, but this thing's prominent, but I'll, I'll show you when we're done. But uh, so it's one of the kind of profound ones I've seen. Um, never shared that online, nothing like that, because, you know, these things, you share things online, people are just, uh, they'll just poo-poo because they don't know anything about it or whatever else. Plus, it's three of the people as well no sharing that. Um, well, I did I did send this at their request to a second lab, and I'll only just say it was in Eastern Europe, and it was a very advanced photographic, uh, military ad- advanced lab to, to look at the photo, mm-hmm. because if it was something natural or, you know, I, I wanted it you to... Want out, yeah. Yeah. And if it wasn't, I wanted it to get, so to speak, a clean bill of health um, as something truly anomalous. And they had, they uh, as the same thing as the Kodak expert, they said, uh, this is a really good high-resolution photo. And whatever this is, it's about nine feet off the ground. Mm-hmm. Hello. If it was a face and it was that far up, unless this was uh, Homo giganticus, yeah. <laughs> you know, this was this was something that was floating as well and within the bounds of the graveyard where this uh, woman was allegedly buried. But there is a sequel here because when I went back for this uh, gentleman who said. You know, maybe we can get you on in uh, national public radio or whatever. Um, I went back and did the research and they have completely changed the story uh, in, in local outlets. Now, I have an opinion about that. The church finally, I don't know when, but sometime since I was there, they decided that they were an Episcopalian church, which, by the way, is no different if you know what the Church of England is like, if you've chanced upon it somewhere, uh, there is no difference except they, they don't want to be associated with the colonial power. But um, uh, it is now considered an Episcopal church. And in that Orwellian way, they, they put up on any site that deals with the ghostly phenomena of Christ church, which has a very interesting history in and of itself. I mean, it's where the essentially where the Methodist Church started. Uh, the uh, Wesley brothers came to convert the uh, 
the Cherokee and found themselves having to modify their views. So they came over as uh, uh, Church of England uh, uh, priests yeah. and went back as Methodists. And uh, that's where the Methodist Church came from, probably because uh, there was a book about it called Strange Fires, about uh, confronting the frontier in the early 1700s in Georgia and having to revise one's opinions of, of what reality was all about. But anyway, apparently they're trying to say, we don't, I mean, there's even a thing, you can look it up on the internet, uh, Christchurch, St. Simon's Holland, Georgia, and it will give a, again, Orwellian revised history as if, uh, we're not uh, uh, Church of England. We're Episcopalians and have always been Episcopalians. And there are a couple of people on the island who, I mean, it's just fairly bizarre. So the original story, it's fortunate that I have a file on it or I would doubt my own memory, except, yeah, yeah. you know, Jim Mosley was there. It was documented when Gray Barker, uh, for a brief period, took over Saucer News, bought it from Jim, and refused to give it back when Jim decided he'd made an awful mistake <laughs> in selling it to him. Um, and that was where Saucer Smear came from, because he he wanted to get out something that uh, had, had to do with uh, uh, his original title, which was his, you know going back to its original title, which was Nexus. Mm. Uh, book one, tome one, then he discovered that a book and a tome are the same thing, so he changed that. But my, my point being that the original story, somewhere along the line, my guess is in local government and local church politics, which is taken very seriously out in the boondocks in, yeah. in Georgia, they have changed the history and that has interfered with a whole series of uh, uh, sightings of this uh, entity mm -hmm. going back to the uh, to the time of the death of the the young woman who had uh, was married to the priest of that church, or the priest of some other church that doesn't Don't actually exist. Interesting. You obviously, you mentioned like going into like saucers and UFOs there. Like in regards to like back in the day when you had the contact key movement, and um, now we've got a lot of different stuff now, and you've got like a lot of things like C five, um, and people obviously try to link with the phenomenon. Do you do you do you see things like that as some form of ritual that they are taking part in to, to bring this down, or is it just the attention and intention of these people? being together, it's, it's potentially bringing something to them. Um, I think that it's like mediumship. It's something that lends itself to frauds happening, but that doesn't mean that all mediumship is fraudulent and it doesn't mean that all contactees are frauds. Yeah. And uh, I'm not even sure that any of them are, are frauds in the uh, true sense of that term. I think that having spent five years working 
the graveyard shift, the midnight to dawn shift, which is perfect for me, mm-hmm. but you get some pretty weird calls from people uh, in the wee hours, yeah. if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, and uh, I had like 3,000 clients in the five years that I worked for them. Um, where was I going with that? Uh, with the CE5 and the, the contact. Uh, oh, okay. So, the CE5, but that type became the congregation. They actually trying to maybe bring something down or what that is it ritualistic in it, or is it um, that that's kind of what I was asking. Her. What happened with mediumship is that physical mediumship, whether it ever existed or not, mm-hmm. it got so many people, mostly stage magicians, yeah. starting with Houdini. Uh, or as his real name was, Eric Weiss, um, who modeled his name on an earlier magician named uh, Houdin. So um, French magician said to be very good. Uh, A lot of basically unemployed magicians uh, seem to get their jollies by duplicating physical mediumship and saying Mm -hmm. it's all bunk, as if if you sort of kind of duplicate something that proves that the original didn't happen, mm-hmm. which is uh, utter bilge, you know, that's just just not the case. It means it can be duplicated, but it doesn't mean that it's not real. Of course, there are a lot of mediums who have been caught in rather unsavory bilking their grieving clients' cases, and that, that happens with mental mediumship as well. Mm-hmm. But having said that, I think that the uh, many of the original contactee experiences started out as a telepathic or even shortwave radio transference of information from from Magonia, from Ferry. Mm-hmm. And um, I think even George Adamski, who certainly hoaxed a bunch of photos and set up a lot of things, and the further he got along in life, the the more trips to Venus or wherever he was going happened, because there is that thing which, like on uh, my major discovery in doing Psychic Friends was you can't perform on cue just because somebody calls and says, where is my lost cat? <laughs> Maybe you have a flash of intuition, but nine times out of 10, you don't because it just isn't something that's available on an assembly line basis, mm-hmm. you know? So it's it's uh, harder to do. And I would fall back on doing a tarot reading because I've been reading tarot uh, possibly longer than anyone else alive. I mean, I've been reading it since 1962, and there may be some Romani people out there who, mm. elderly Romani people who've been reading longer than that, but uh, not that I know of, and certainly not the uh, you know, the current crop of people who read the 70 million tarot decks that are out there now. <laughs> 70 million being the scientific title. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, uh, so I would fall back on that because it was very reliable and it didn't involve my being psychic, just being my, my being a good interpreter. But in terms of, you know, where is my lost cat uh, at 4 a.m.? 
that is that is way beyond my abilities or I venture to say anybody's abilities. So circling back to your question, I think even George Adamski, sometimes circa 19, during World War II, so circa 1940, 41, 42, somewhere in there, he had a paranormal experience in which he received information. I base that on the fact that when you use the, um, as, as I describe, you name my books, I don't want to be plug them, but uh, as I describe in, you know, the secret Cypher. Yeah. yeah. The, the ciphers of Al, as they were called by the British Journal of Ceremonial Magic, who discovered it. That was Jim Lees and Carol Smith. I believe Carol is still with us. And uh, the recently deceased uh, Jake Stratton Kent, they, they sort of broke this code that Alistair Crowley couldn't break. And in fact, in the code book, as I call liberal, uh, he was told that he couldn't break it. But just as with that, Adamski had a paranormal psychic experience, tried to sell it as a science fiction story, got turned down because the science fiction stories, other than those in uh, Amazing and Fantastic, the 1940s magazines that Ray Palmer was running then. And yeah. Ray was awfully sympathetic to this stuff which uh, my friend uh, Dick Shaver was, you know, really, and that is his real name, Dick Shaver. <laughs> what what so, a, a so the best job in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, but his real name was Richard Sharp Shaver, <laughs> which, and he wasn't Jewish, you know. I mean, we get the little cut, at, well, that's, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier in life than we remember. Just, but um, uh, in any event, he couldn't sell it as science fiction and tried to write it as a physical event. Mm-hmm. And then he met Desmond Leslie, son of the prominent politician Sir Shane Leslie. And uh, the rest as they always say is history uh, that uh, I, I mean, I don't blame uh, Desmond Leslie, who, by the way, uh, you're familiar with the original movie, not the Keanu Reeves version. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah. Um, I am poor these days. I come from a fairly well-to-do family, mm-hmm. but uh, decades of world travel plus my mother's household expenses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum, ad infinitum. Uh, that, that has been gone for a long time, and I actually had to uh, work for many years until uh, uh, fairly recently doing, you know, rather menial jobs. I wasn't, I wasn't in the colliery, you know, digging out the... digging out the cold, but I was working in a warehouse at 40 with people half my age lugging boxes around. So um, uh, 
where to go with that. Um, I'll go back to Adamski. I think that I was unaware until yesterday, maybe another synchronicity of sorts, that Patricia Neal, who was the female lead in The Day There Stood Still with Michael Rennie, yeah. had done another movie in England for Pinewood or for, uh, uh, I don't know, it, it, the studio name. Anyway, I watch a lot of free movies on YouTube yeah. and endure the commercials, which are usually for something because, and I didn't, I was unaware of this completely. But apparently she did another movie, an English version of The Day the Earth Stood Still, about a visitor from Venus who she falls in love with, which is virtually what, you know, the story of, he didn't have a robot, that was the only thing. He had his friends from outer space who would blow up the Earth if they tried to crash their saucer. But it's basically obviously highly influenced by the Michael Rennie, Patricia Neal version. And the fact that she was the female lead in this film too, I thought, you know, got my attention. Mm -hmm. So I always watch the credits with movies like tomorrow I'll be going to see Oppenheimer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I will stay through the last credit, first of all, to make sure it's a union film because all of our, uh, my my eldest yes. son is a screenwriter and he's on strike. Yeah, yeah. And SAG-AFTRA, the, the Screen Actors and uh, TV Actors Guild, is on strike in sympathy with them. So, mm. but uh, and I like to see the union seal on films, although they don't put it on old films. Um, yeah, I'll be going to see it as well. Quite wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Here, let me give you the kicker line. Yeah. Guess who wrote this film? Who wrote it? Du, 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 du. Um, I'm sorry, your time is up. It was Desmond <laughs> Leslie. Ah, okay. Is that freaking weird or not? <laughs> Clearly, uh, this is after the book that he co-authored with Adamski. Mm -hmm. But during that same period, I think the, the vintage is 1957. So it took several years after. And I was totally unaware that A, he had written yeah. outright fiction and B, that he had written this film about a visitor from Venus, which of course features prominently in Adamski lore. Mm -hmm. There's a whole darker side of the whole Adamski saga, but su suffice to say this, I think people like uh, Truman Theorem, uh, uh, um, um, uh, the, the, the crowd that used to assemble at Giant Rock in California, yeah. I think some of them were delusional people, some of them were con men, most of them were actually having experiences which were not physical in nature but were very real. Yeah. And trying to translate them for a public that wouldn't laugh at them. Yeah. Others were having experiences, a term coined much later by uh, my acquaintance, John Keel, uh, are silent contactees. And I think those cases 
are still occurring, but the amount of ridicule that the early contactees got has discouraged people from telling that kind of story. Yeah. On the other hand, there's a huge <clears throat> proliferation of a kind of mediumship that doesn't involve spirits of the dead, but involves astral beings, yeah. beginning largely with the Seth material, the raw material, who I uh, knew the people who channeled that. And they were a hundred percent reputable people. They didn't even make any claims for the material. They just said, this is what we get. We can teach our technique to anybody. Mm -hmm. And what it is has to stand on its own merits. And uh, that was uh, curiously enough in Kentucky, which is uh, the equivalent of the Midlands in your own country, the yeah. uh, a high, high density zone, which in that case, it's on a convergence of six different ley lines, but also is right above the largest cave system in, uh, in North America. Yeah. Yeah. Runs all the way through West Virginia and Kentucky. Yeah. It's massive. Yeah. Yeah. Massive. And, uh, People disappear there all the time. I heard a weird story just yesterday about uh, some uh, researchers who blundered into a cave where these people dressed in black robes were performing some kind of ritual. And they had the good sense to leave, which otherwise they may have become the enormous number of people who disappear worldwide, some of whom show up later, some of whom are evading the long arm of the law or the not so long arm of the law, some of whom are, you know, getting out of bad marriages or bad debts or whatever, but many of whom are gone without a trace forever. And of course, Richard Shaver had a good deal to say about that. Only he thought that the earth was honeycombed with caverns. Mm -hmm. And I think what these caverns are is a convenient location for the Fae, the others. Mm -hmm. The others, we'll just say. Yeah, the others. Uh, to have semi-permanent portals. And they come in and out of those portals. And of course, someone who goes through a portal that doesn't understand the notion of portals Someone like me, who's a ceremonial magician, among other things, anyone who has opened an Enochian portal knows what portals are like. They go to other ethers, heirs, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the terminology shifts according to your, your own personal mythos, but, yeah. uh, but it's going to, I like the term Magonia. It's just mm -hmm. because it doesn't, mean anything specific, but it means fairyland, uh, the place where time runs different and things are not as they seem here.